0: Our Heavenly Father, again, we just uh, approach you, Lord, with uh, reverence, honor, and glory. Uh, Again, we just thank you for the privilege to serve you, to know you in a personal way. And Lord, Father, I just pray that your blessing would be upon your word this morning. And Lord, that we might be drawn together closer as we've met today. And also, Father, Lord, because we belong to you and help us to serve you in a greater way as we leave this morning. We would pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I might have a little deeper voice this morning than normal. Uh, <clears throat> I think it was choir that turned it on, because when I left choir Wednesday night, boy, I could hardly talk that evening. And it uh, may have been good for Helen, but uh, not for me. But <clears throat> I'm prepared. I have cough drops. I have some water here. And uh, Lord willing, I'll make it through this. But, again, uh, the, the message that I have in the bulletin is the everything. Now, we, we sung the first song in the opening of our service, you know, about he is everything. And I would pray that that would be true in each of our lives. I want you to turn to John's gospel, and we're just going to, I just want to look at a couple verses, and then I'll give us a quick running commentary of the introduction of the book, because I, I think it means so much as we kind of unfold what I want to focus on this morning, <clears throat> the key verses I want to look at is John one sixteen, but also in John 3.30. And I know we're probably more familiar with John 3.30, where it says, He must increase, but I must decrease. But if you look at John one sixteen, it really pulls something at us, because I think we fail to realize all that we have in Jesus Christ if you look at uh, John 1.16, it says, For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. That fullness we've all received. Ephesians 3.19, Paul says, uh, or rather he speaks of having all that fullness of Christ. As believers, God never held back on us. We have everything. In fact, Second uh, Peter one three says, We have all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him has called us to glory and virtue. God has made the provision that we can truly have joy. In John 15.11, the Lord speaks about having this joy. This joy that, and it can be full. He talks about a peace in Philippians uh, four seven that passes all understanding. And there are Christians that have been saved for years, and they have no clue what those truths mean. We're familiar with uh, verses like uh, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through, through Christ Jesus that strengthens me. And we mount those verses, but do we really? do we really mean that? Can we do all things through Christ that strengthens us? Because many times when the world looks at the church, We look like we're really lacking in a lot of ways. Because so many Christians live just like the world. You can't tell the difference. The divorce rate is the same. Teenage pregnancies are the same. Everything's the same. Do we know what it means to have this fullness of Christ operating in our lives? And so I, you know, we, we opened up with... The, the song and it says that he's everything to us. We sing about that. And I guess the real question is, is he everything? And that's the title of my message this morning. When you open up in the introduction of John chapter 1, we begin. And, and, and it's these are just fabulous verses. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And John opens up. And again, John, the author, the disciple of Christ, opens up this narrative, and he talks about Christ being God. Not a God like some would like to believe, but the God. But God alone made flesh, and he dwelt among us according to verse 14. So we have Christ Jesus coming into the world and with a, with, you know, taking on a human body and living among us and John goes on in his testimony and verse 19 says this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and levites from Jerusalem to ask him who are you and of course John the Baptist elaborates on that and his point is is, is I'm only a forerunner I'm only a messenger there's one coming after me who I can't even unloose his, his sandals because I'm not worthy He is so far above me, he is so great, I'm not worthy to even untie his sandal. And so he exposes that. And in John chapter 1, if you're looking at roughly at verses 6 through 8, we see that John the Baptist, he sent as God's witness. And what does he do? He testifies about the light in verse 7. In verse 8, Jesus Christ is that light that he comes to bear witness of. You know he says I'm not that light but I bear witness of that light that is about that is to come. And so John the Baptist he understood his place in the scheme of things. He understood his place in the plan of God. And he understand that he was not the center of the universe. But he was just a forerunner, he was just a messenger. Look at verse 29. Of John 1 and we're all familiar with this verse here the next day he saw Jesus coming this is John the Baptist coming to him and said behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and verse 30 this is he on behalf of whom I said after me comes a man who has higher rank than I for he existed before me and he recognizes his place again He recognizes that he's not the focal point. He's not the center of attention. But there's one that is the center of attention, and that's Jesus Christ. And that really brings us to back at verse 16 of chapter 1. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. I mean, if you could sum up Christianity, I would sum it up in verse 16 of chapter 1. This fullness for of his fullness we have all received. None of us gets shortchanged in the Christian life. God doesn't play favorites. He doesn't give one person more than the other. We can all experience the fullness of God. Ephesians 3:19 says, "And to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God." I mean, that's a loaded verse. And if you notice anything about the scriptures, everything is focused on Christ. He is everything. And so as Christians, he should be everything. He gives us life. He gives us the very air we breathe. He gives us this body to live in. although it's temporary, he certainly has something far greater waiting for us. And the only reason we're in this temporary setting now is because of the fall. And the whole earth has been cursed through it. But Christianity is not just believing, oh, Jesus, you know, the blood of Jesus cleansed me from all sin and it just stops there. And somehow it just dies and that, that's it. I got my, you know, fire insurance and I'm good to go. That is just the, the opening the door. It's more than just being saved. It's more than just having your sins forgiven. It's the beginning of. But it is not the end. And we can know so much more about our our Heavenly Father. And of course, Christ living in us. In fact, Colossians 127, Christ in you, the hope of glory. I mean, as Christians, this should really resonate with us. To think that very God lives in the souls of men. And plus... On top of that, we have the blessing of the Holy Spirit that indwells us. Ephesians 4.30 says, we are sealed until the day of redemption. What security, what promises that God's word gives us? I mean, we belong to him. He is ours. And so much, so much riches that he provides for us. And I think too often we think of eternal life as something, well, that's in the future, That's something when I die, but eternal life begins at the moment we believe. Eternal life is not a a quantity of life. It is a quality of life. And I've known Christians throughout my many years. I've been saved over 40 years now, and uh, it amazes me. I see some Christians that kind of walk around like, you know, kicking stones and stuff. Just Jesus. That's all I got. I mean, you got everything. And so we need to come with this with a whole new perspective on what we have in Christ. Christianity is receiving his fullness. All that he is. And I like it, as I mentioned already, you know, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I I love the guy's writings. And he, he writes it. He says, the life of God in the souls of men. Boy, you can't put it any plainer. God lives in us. But if we are going to uh, decrease and he is going to going to increase in our life, we need to look at our Christianity a whole lot different. You know, at salvation, we receive eternal life. And again, it's it's not a length of life, but it's a quality of life. And we have to understand that. It doesn't begin after we die, but it begins the moment we believe. And John knew this. John understood that his ministry would need to come to an end. And I'm taking that that verse, John 3.30, a little bit further. Because you know what? We all have to decrease. And he has to increase in our life. Because until we do that, we forfeit the riches and the blessings that God has. We kind of stymie that fullness in a big way. Because our self has a way of getting in the way of everything when it comes to our Christian life, and so if we are to receive that fullness, if we're going to receive this grace upon grace, then he needs to uh, he needs to increase and constantly increase, and we need to keep getting out of the way more and more and more. One of the things I want to focus on at least three things. Before we get into the really the heart of the the matter here. But if you look at John three seven, there's three must in this verse M U S T S. I mean these are necessary, and it's interesting John brings these out and it's all in this one ver this one chapter here. But he says Marvel not that I said unto you, you must be born again. It's not open for de- a debate or anything. This isn't a question, well, you know, if, if you, if you want to get born again, you can enter the kingdom of God without it. You've you, you got options here. It's not that way. There's only one way, and it, you can make all the excuses in the world, but if you are not born again, the Bible tells us, marvel not, you must be, then you'll never make heaven. So that's one of the musts that we see that kind of jumps out at us in this section. In fact, the, you know, the Lord doesn't even give Nicodemus a discussion here on that issue. You know, Nicodemus has his own issues, but the Lord comes, kind of comes right in and says, except the man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Let alone enter it, you're not even going to see it. And so this is the first must. The second must is uh, found in verses 14 and 15. Jesus came to die. This is no accident. This was the plan of God. The Bible tells us before the foundation of the world, God set these things in motion and they were going to come to pass that we might have eternal life, that we might be redeemed, that he might buy us back out of the slave market of sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I mean, apart from him, we can't save ourselves. And so Jesus comes to die, and it says that he, uh, he must be lifted up. And that's a picture of the cross, him dying on the cross. He needs to die because if we die, we can't save ourselves. If we die, we die in our sins, John 8:24 24 says. And so we need what Christ offers, and only he alone can uh, save us. And so, again, his death is no accident. This is the plan of God, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And so this is a necessary thing. And, again, these are just fundamental laws. These are spiritual laws that have to be. You can't go around them. You can't ignore them. Uh, There's no other options. This is it. And so it is necessary. And so there's no picking and choosing here. So we must be born again. He must be lifted up, and then we come to this third must, and that's in our passage this morning in verse 30. He must increase, and I must decrease. And I want to look at how this kind of plays out. Now, I know with the time, it isn't going to be enough time, but I'm going to unload what I can this morning, and hopefully we can walk out of here this morning with some kind of maybe some freshness and new ways to look at our spiritual walk. And hopefully, you'll be challenged this morning and maybe reconsider maybe the way you've been living your life or in maybe some ways of, you know, I want more of that fullness. I want Christ alive in my life. You know, my life's been a little stale lately, and I want Christ to be exalted. And Lord willing, this is going to help you. Now, you might get a little convicted this morning, but that's all okay. Okay. I've been convicted now for four weeks, you know, looking at this and toying with this whole idea. So you can join the club, amen? You. And so the, I want to start out looking at John 3.30, and I want to look at this phrase, I must decrease. I must decrease. Now, as I already mentioned earlier, we are our biggest enemy. We are our biggest problem problem. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you find that out. Uh, now, I know when I first got saved, I, I thought I was good to go. I thought I'd never sin again. And I tell you, I'm not, I'm right out of the starting gate, I don't need to go into details, but <laughs> I didn't do so well. And and boy, I walked off, and I, I was just I was just so ashamed. I thought. I let down God. And man, I just got saved. <laughs> How is this going to work? And so we we want him to flourish in our life. And again, you, you if you've been saved for any length of time, you realize that this Christian maturity, this spiritual growth, it doesn't happen overnight. It's a process. In fact, it's a lifelong process. And so we want to get busy at that and, you know, work at it. In fact Paul Paul wasn't immune to the flesh. Romans 7:18 he says, "For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing; for the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not." You know, in verse 19 he continues and he says the good that I want to do, well, for some reason I just always I just can't do it. And then of course if you read the rest of the passage he says, there's a principle in me, and that's my problem. If you go back to John three nineteen, and Jesus makes the, con- the, the, the statement, and this is the condemnation, that light has come in the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. You see what our problem is? We love dark. That's why we live defeated lives. That's why we're not what we ought to be. Is because just like me, I'm just like you, we love darkness rather than light. And that's very that's just the way it is. Now that's not an excuse, as we're gonna find out, but we do have a problem with ourselves, and we are our biggest hindrance. There are three enemies that we face the world, the flesh and the devil. The flesh is our biggest problem. You know, we like to blame the devil on everything. You know, say the devil made me do it. You know, kind of Flip Wilson thing there from back in what the '60s, whatever. But anyway, no, we're usually the problem. Uh, the devil don't have to help us because we eagerly jump in with both feet many times, and so we have the flesh. And self is our greatest enemy. In fact, in uh, James one thirteen, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. In verse 14, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. We are the problem. We are the biggest problem. And then, of course, the devil. He doesn't help. His little cohorts, they just kind of add to the mix. And we know from Scripture that he's the God of this age. He's the God of the world. And not only that, the Bible says that he's the principality and power of the air. Satan pretty much runs things here on the planet, you know. Now, certainly God in his sovereignty restricts him. He restrains him because if Satan had his way, he'd destroy everything. But the Lord restrains them, according to Second Thessalonians 2, 7 and 8. But he holds them back. But again, we have that to do battle against. And I'll tell you, uh, he gives us the armor. He tells us in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18 that we, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And so we have the provisions to, to live victorious. We don't utilize them often. But again, it comes back to the flesh. Then we have the devil. And then the world, the whole world system. And that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about the earth as a planet per se. He's talking about the world system, the world's influence that drives, you know, the way people think. And we're caught up in all this. And so we need a lot of help if we're going to live in a way that honors and glorifies the Lord. And he has made that provision In fact, uh, 1 John 2, 15 and 16 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh and the lust, you know, of the mind and the heart. And he says, and these are contrary to God. They, They oppose God. They go against God. And of course, verse 17 says that the world passes away and the lust thereof. But he that does the will of God abides forever. And so we got this to do battle with. And so we need to understand that the, the power of all these uh, things coming at us. You know, there was a time when Christianity had uh, an influence in our nation. And of course, over the last, what, three, four decades, it certainly lost that momentum. I mean, we're, we're looked at basically as the enemy in this country. And, and how sad it is. But if we are to live in a victorious way, if we're going to have victory, you know, in our spiritual lives, we need to become nothing. That might be a hard pill to swallow, but that's where we're at. He is to be everything. And too often we can't let go of this life because you know what? We got our treasures here. And we gotta kind of cut that off. You know, the thing is, First Timothy six seventeen, you know, provides us a balance. God says that He's given us all things to enjoy. You know, we have we can have things, we can enjoy things, but one of our biggest problems was we let that come between the Lord and us. And that's our failure. And so it's good to have those things. How does Paul get a mindset like this? Philippians 1.21, we all know the verse, for to me to live is Christ and to die gain. For Paul to live is Christ. I mean, everything is Christ. If I'm living, it's Christ. If I die, well, that, that's gain. It's amazing. And then he says in Philippians two four: look, not every man on his own things, but every man also in the things of others. You know, the idea of putting others before yourself. And sometimes it's really hard to do. And we'll spend a lifetime trying to have victory over that. And so we there's that, that battle. But the idea is we need to decrease self and increase Jesus Christ. And again, this is that ongoing uh, pursuit. And you know what? I, I really think when I look at our, ourselves... The most devastating thing about sin, pride. Pride. Because pride always likes to raise its ugly head, and it's me, myself, and I. That's pride. That's pride in a nutshell. You don't want to know where bitterness comes from? You want to know where envy and strife and the jealousies come from? It's all pride because you don't get your way. And you know it's it's an amazing thing because Christ has a rich life for us, and sometimes we can get tied down from the silliest and most petty things, and it robs us of our joy that we can have in Christ. You know, some people, boy, they get all bent out of shape over the silliest, and their day is ruined. You want to talk about having your day ruined? Step in the shoes of the Apostle Paul. This guy's stoned half the time, left for dead, and he goes right back in the city and preaches the gospel. He gets thrown out of one city, he goes into another. This is the guy that says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is the guy who says, I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. He knew what he was talking about. He experienced it. He lived it. And it is possible. The same resources Paul has, we have. We, we can have that same fullness in Christ. And Paul will admit out of Philippians 3, 13 and 14 that he never arrived. He says, I'm still pressing toward that, that prize, that high calling of God, which is in Christ Jesus. He says, I haven't attained yet. And so... It's a life-going thing, but again, this pride thing—you know—and it, it it introduces to us this element of self. There's that self-centeredness, the self-righteousness, this self-protection. You know, uh, you know what I mean. You got to kind of like justify yourself when you do things. There are people that like to justify their sin instead of confessing and dealing with it. They justify it. Well, you'll never make any headway that way. But it's this whole idea of self-concern. And what happens? Self can become so important. You know, our egos can be so inflated that Christ somehow gets buried in the shuffle. And we come to church, it might be out of just motion, We, you know, just out of routine. We might go through our ministries, whatever you're involved in, and we get all busied up. But Christ really is not at the forefront of of who we are. You see, it it goes beyond beyond ministry. What Christ wants in us is he says, I want you to know me. Yeah, I want you to serve me, but don't forget me. There's a big difference because when Christ has consumed your life, there's a joy, there, there, there is a joy that the world can't take away. There is a peace that passes all understanding that the world cannot affect. You know, when Paul wrote Philippians, remember he's writing from uh, jail and he talks about joy more than all the other epistles. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. I mean, we stub our little toe and we're done for the day or the week. You know, (laughs) that's not good. And so what we want to do is how do we get a mindset like this? And there are a lot of different tests that we can go by. And so I want to run through some, and I'm going to have to do it kind of quickly here. But one of the first things on this area of, of decreasing self, first of all, do we have a true and proper view of ourselves? Do we have a true and proper view of ourselves? And I that's I think this is the best place to, to start with this. You know, the Greeks... In their wisdom, they had this great statement, you know, for success in life. Know, know thyself, what they would say. Well, in a real sense, the scriptures give us that same idea. It teaches us, you know, this great principle. Romans twelve three Romans twelve three, he says that we are not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but we are to judge soundly. In other words, we are to evaluate ourselves, we ought to think soberly about ourselves and recognize who we really are. because too often we have this inflated idea about who we are. You know, I, you hear a lot of people talk about self-esteem. I low self-esteem. I don't know anybody has low self-esteem. Usually people are all puffed up and they're Mr. Wonderful. The problem when they want to flaunt their self or or say that they don't have any self-esteem is because they want to draw attention to themselves. You know, self is very deceitful. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, God knows it because he knows the thoughts and intents of our heart, but we don't always. A lot of times in our prayer life, we don't want to go there and really evaluate our spiritual life because it might be a little bit too ugly. And so we have to face ourselves. Uh, Proverbs 16 2 says, All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. You know, we can get all caught up doing pretty good, God must really please. And, but God, but it goes on and says, but I didn't think about my motive. Forgot about those, but that's what God looks at. And so that's one way we can look at it. But even Galatians 6, 3 brings it out again. For if a man man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. Boy, we probably do that a lot. Because we want to, the flesh, that pride, that ego wants to exalt self. It's always raising its ugly head, and we've got to constantly deal with it. If a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he see himself. And this kind of gives us a little perspective on self, you know. And so these verses sort of help keep us in check a little bit. But isn't it interesting? You look at the Apostle Paul. If anyone could boast about himself, he could. If you remember Philippians 3, we kind of get a little background of Paul. In Philippians 3, 4, he says, Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if any other man think he hath where he might trust in the flesh, he says, I more. I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, is touching the law of Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, Touching the righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. But verse 8, he wakes up. But he says, all those things I've count but lost. That I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, but the righteousness which is by faith. in." See, before Paul's conversion, he had this inflated ego also. And it was something he had to battle with. As a matter of fact, you know, the Pharisees, what they used to do, is they would, so they would make it look like they would, were doing really good. They'd bring God's standard lower, and they'd raise, raise how they were doing even, and they really believed uh, that they were keeping the law of God to the, to the nth degree. That's why when that rich young ruler comes to Jesus, uh, what do I got to do, do uh, to attain eternal life? You know, what do I lack yet? Boy, oh boy, you talk about an ego. What do I lack? And, of course, we know Jesus nailed him right where he is at. Go sell all you have and come follow me. He wasn't doing so hot then because the Lord pegged him right where he was at. He was tied up, you know, on the, the riches of this life and money, and he had all that, and he wasn't willing to part with it. That was more important than Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 7, 7, he says, uh what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? He says, don't you know that you've been separated from that? The following verse says. But if you remember Paul at his conversion, remember he could keep the law. Boy, if he, he, should, he stood, you know, head and shoulders above everybody else as a Pharisee. But in Romans 7, 7, he realized one thing. You know what I got a problem of? He says, I covet. And that's what slew him. That's the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, Oxen. anything that is thy neighbor's. And there's a list Oh, I forgot about that. That's why in Matthew 5, 28, Jesus says, whosoever should look on a woman and lust after his committed adultery, they're already in his heart. You don't have to do the act. Just that desire, that coveting. That's the problem. We have a desire for something that belongs to someone else or desiring something that we shouldn't. And that's what nailed Paul. He coveted it. And that's the one commandment of God that really got his attention because it was overlooked, evidently. And it wasn't to the Damascus Road when he was confronted with it. You remember the Pharisee in Luke 18? I remember they come to the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee, the other was a publican, a tax collector. And the Pharisee prays thus thus for themselves, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even as this publican or this tax collector. He says, I fast twice in a week. You know, I, I give tithes of all I possess. Pretty good, huh, God? I sit there, you know, thinking he's just wonderful. And it says of the tax collector, he would not so much as lift his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbled himself shall be exalted. Yeah, the Pharisees in there with all his pride and his arrogance, thinking he's Mr. Wonderful, and boy, he didn't have it. That's why in Matthew seven twenty it says, Except your righteousness, exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall no way enter the kingdom of God. Because the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees doesn't cut it. We need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so we've got to get rid of self. Self has to go. And isn't it amazing uh, uh, in, in all this? Paul says in Philippians, and this tells you how much he learned. Philippians 4.11, he says, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. Content. Isn't that amazing? He learned to be content. You know why Paul had, could experience God's fullness is because he was content in whatever situation he was in. And so again, it just over and over again. You know. And so, are you less self-centered than you used to be? This is another one. Only you can answer that. Are you less? Self-centered than when you first got saved. And it's amazing. We we need to rid ourselves of self-centeredness. And how, how might this show? You know, I think a lot of times we always think of uh, self-centeredness as we're bragging about ourselves. It certainly would include that. But I think we could even take it a further. You know, we can always whine and complain and you know, draw attention to ourselves in that way. You ever think of that? That that's pride. Poor, poor, pitiful me. You know, God, God's just unfair. Why me? And again, it's it's itself being at the center of everything. It's just pride. And we have to confront those things and recognize if we don't get rid of self we'll never experience that fullness of him and by the way after paul talks about being content he says in philippians 4:12 he talks about how whether he had much or he had little it didn't make any difference he was he was he was happy and then in verse 13 that's when he says i can do all things through christ strengthens me there was a lot of times he didn't have much. Read 2 Corinthians 11, 22 through 28. You find out he was beaten often. he was shipwrecked. You name it, he, he went through it and it gets all done and he says, and beside this, there was a the care of all the church. You know, he had such a burden for the churches. If you look at the Corinthian assembly, one of their biggest things, and I got to kind of rush a little bit, but one of the things with the Corinthian assembly Paul says to you, when you guys get together, you don't get together for the better. You get, come together for the worse. Now, what kind of a commentary is that on a church? You remember it opens up. Oh, I'm, I'm of Apollos. Oh, I'm a Cephas. <laughs> I follow Peter. Oh, I'm a Paul. And they got their little cliques. And they're all following the wrong things when Christ is the one that should be exalted. And then you see all the bickering and the strife and the envying and all that going on. They even abused the Lord's Supper, which Greg uh, mentioned a few weeks back. And there were such abuses in the whole assembly. And that's why Paul said, boy, when you guys come together, it's never for the good. And it's all because of pride. It should be me. I want to be first. It's all about me. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Are you not carnal? There's nothing spiritual about you. You've been Christians for like five years and you're still carnal. You, you got to grow up. John 15 5 says, Abide me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except you abide in me. And then in verse then he goes on and he talks about bearing fruit and how he's purging it, and he says, Apart from me you can do nothing. And it's only when we abide, it's only then will there be that fullness in our life. In fact, you want to know what the Bible has to say about pride. In Proverbs sixteen five, it says, Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs sixteen eighteen, pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. And then first Corinthians ten twelve, you know the carnal Corinthians. First Corinthians ten twelve says, Wherefore let him that thinketh he stand and take heed lest he fall. Boy, they were falling all over the place. Um Revelation three seventeen, and this is key. Remember the writings of the church, and this is the Laodicean church. This is the, the church that was lukewarm. In Revelation 3.17, it says, because you are rich and, and, have, and you're wealthy, you have need of nothing. And you do not know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You see, they deceived themselves. They thought they were okay. They figured everything was looking pretty good. Hey, I'm doing good. And they lost sight of Jesus Christ. Another thing, do you live, do you live less and less on feelings and more and more? on faith see we can get all tied up proverbs 3 5 and 6 says trust in the lord with all thine heart and lean not under thine own understanding acknowledge him in all thy ways and he shall direct thy path you see acknowledge him in all his ways and he will direct our path our problem is is we do lean on our own understanding we lean on our feelings we lean on our our emotions we lean on our experiences and What are you going to end up? You're going to end up with a, you're going to be troubled. Life's going to really be difficult because now you're you're trying to duke it out on your own. And I like what Paul has to say. He says in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything is of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. I mean, Paul had it dead on. There's no self-reliance in that. And he knew where to go. He knew it was Christ, and he's the one that made all the, the difference in the world. And let me quickly, let's look at this area of increase. How can we increase? Well, first of all, we need to study the scriptures. Even Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, when he was being tempted, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We need the word of God in our life. And it seems like every time I preach, I, I can't help but emphasize that you got to have the word of God in you. You can't live what you don't know. And I think that's just basic to Christianity. And so we need God's word. But I want to look at some of God's attributes. Boy, i, I got to wind this down. But think, about, think of his eternality. Think of the fact that God has always existed. I don't know about you, but that blows my mind when I think of that. God always was. He would have to always exist. Because if he never existed, where does everything come from? What makes things happen? It's only the fool that says in his heart there is no God. And I like Romans one twenty five. It says, who changed the truth of God into a lie. They worship and serve the creature more than the creator. Well, you willfully blinding yourself to turn from what is all around you. As a matter of fact, Romans one nineteen and 20 tells us that creation itself is evidence that God exists. And it's in that same passage where he says they've changed the truth of God into a lie because they reject God's witness and his testimony. Psalms 19, 1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God but man rejects that they'd rather go to evolution. They'd rather go to something else of billions and billions of years and everything just, there was had to have been some kind of bang out there. Well, my thing is, is what caused the bang? And I'd like to know what was in that bang. I mean, but well, where there's a will, there's a way and men will do away with God. And because they won't, they love their darkness really more than the light of God. But just think of God, eternal. And let me give you this, Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the Lord, the high and lofty one, and I like the King James, uh, who inhabits eternity. That's God. Always existed, always will exist. Now, we didn't always exist. We will now, but... We didn't, but God did. And he's the only one we can talk about that. And guess what? The Bible tells us that Jesus is that exact representation of God. He's that exact image out of Hebrews one three. And, of course, the Scriptures teach us that Jesus is God. I want to give you this quick because we have to. Listen to these uh dozen of uh, attributes. God is self-existent. And by the way, doesn't this excite you when you think about God? He is self-existent. He's omnipotent. The fact that he's all-powerful, he's he's omniscient, which is all-knowing, he's omnipresence. You know, the psalmist says in 139, 7 through 10, he says, where can I go from your presence? Everywhere I go, you're there. You can't escape God. But that shows you the God that we serve, the God that loved us and died for us, and that we can spend eternal eternity with. And then we learn from Hebrews 13, 8, uh, that Jesus Christ is immutable. He never changes. the same today, yesterday, today, and forever. We learn from the, from scriptures that God is all-wise, that he is sovereign, that he is faithful, that he's a God of love, justice, mercy, and grace patience. I mean, when you look at God and his character and who he is, how infinite he is and how finite we are, I mean, that's got to drive you to your knees. And to think that he loves us and he's perfect in every way. Job 11, 7 says, who can discover the depths of God? Who can discover the limits of the almighty? Let's pray. Our Father... We thank you so much for your word, and we know that through your word, Lord, we can better know you, better understand you, for the great God that you are, and really just how majestic. And Lord, when we pray, Lord, help that to change our prayer, that we might look at you in new light, that we would focus more, even more on you and adore you in our times with you, Father. And Lord, we thank you for the songs that were even sung at the beginning of the service that really elaborated on your greatness and that you truly are everything. And so, Lord, I would just pray for each one of us that we might have a, a fresher look at you. And as Peter says in 2 Peter 1, that uh, he was, his desire would be to put those things in remembrance. Many times we know certain truths, but we need to be reminded of them, that we need to be shaken a little. And so, Father, I would just pray that your word would be alive in our life, that we might more focus on you and just let your uh, beauty uh, permeate our lives. And we would ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.